Hello and welcome to our Armenian News Network room. I'm Hovik Manacharyan. It has now been seven days since Azerbaijan initiated a wide-scale attack against Armenia and Artsakh. The tragic news of deaths and destruction continue to stream in every hour. In today's conversation on Grung, we talked to Jirai Liparidian and Thomas DeWall about the regional geopolitics that helped create a ripe environment for renewed fighting and various potential scenarios that may develop as a result of it. To help guide this conversation, we have Aspet Kochikian, who is a senior lecturer of political science and international relations at Bentley University in Massachusetts, where he teaches courses on Middle East and former Soviet space. Before we begin, however, we appreciate your help in reaching a wider audience. So please, hit the pause button, and make sure to subscribe and like us on whatever platform you listen to us on, and help spread the word by sharing this podcast on your social media channels. Thanks in advance. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. Just two and a half months ago, in July 2020, we witnessed border skirmishes between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Last Sunday, the conflict between the two countries escalated into what, uh, what all observers agree to be the deadliest round of hostilities since the 1994 ceasefire. Since that year, the uneasy, no war, no peace state between the two countries around the future state of Nagorno-Karabakh is no more. There's been a deluge of coverage around the war itself in, the, in recent days. The weaponry, the tactics, casualty lists, and ongoing outcomes. We wanted to step back from the day-to-day of this conflict and examine the meta-alignments in the region. To do that, we are joined today with Professor Jirai Libaritian, who is the former director of the Armenian Studies Program at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, where he also held the Alex Manukian Chair of Modern Armenian History until 2012. However, more relevant to today's discussion, his experience from 1991 to 1997, he served as an advisor and then a senior advisor to Armenia's first president, Levon Derbetrosian, and was the chief negotiator on Garapa. He is the author of numerous books and articles on modern and contemporary Armenia. We're also joined today with Tom Deval, who is a senior fellow with Carnegie Europe, specializing in Eastern Europe and the Caucasus region. He is the author, he's also the author of numerous publications about the region. The most relevant to the current developments being Black Garden, Armenia and Azerbaijan through peace and war. Uh, welcome, gentlemen. One major outcome of the July skirmishes has been the activation of the Turkish foreign policy in the direction of Armenia and the South Caucasus. Regardless of any statements by anyone, Turkey has been de facto a party in the Gonogarapak conflict today. Meanwhile, and oddly, Russia has been rather slow in reacting and pointing to its red lines in the region. Jirai, you were Levon Derbedrosian's senior advisor during his tenure, and you were also the chief negotiator on the Gornogarapa with many meetings in that context with Ankara, Moscow, Iran, as well as within the OSCE context. Could you please briefly tell us what are the metapolitics that form the hotbed that nurtures the Gorapa conflict, percolates it with periodic eruptions, let the steam out, and then the cycle continues? After that short introduction, if you can also provide a context within this context, also give us your assessment of the trajectory in the past two, six months that led to this round of the war. Thank you, Aspet. It's kind of difficult to move away from the day to day, but I, I guess some of us have to do that. And it also occurs naturally when you think of the following statement, we should not have gotten to this point we did not need to get to this point. I think the overall two comments regarding the larger uh, issues. One is the Cold War was never over in, in general, but certainly a mini Cold War continued in this region. And secondly, the what 
President George Bush, Papa Bush, imagined as the New World Order was never constituted. And uh, whatever was a positive uh, outcome of the international cooperation beginning in January 1991 regarding the first Iraq war uh, in connection with the occupation of Kuwait, uh, that goodwill uh, for different reasons dissipated and it, uh, various rivalries continued. Consequently, that uh, these two issues, that is the continuation of the mini-cold uh, mini war and the, fail and the absence of an international order on which major powers agree, that has dissipated and it makes possible what might have been very difficult or impossible in the past. The absence of the United States, the absence of a strong European voice, uh, the absence of UN or even NATO uh, means that the second-rate powers like uh, Turkey will try to benefit, even first-rate ones like China. This is a good time, it seems, for many to do things they would not have done otherwise. And of course, the weaknesses of the present American administration and the ambitious ambitions of others, the rise of dictators, all of that means that there are certain things possible today that would not have been possible in the past. The, the second trajectory is, I think, uh, some general comments. First is that we have a situation that indicates that the two sides gave up on each other at some point. The best hope of a revived positive movement toward peace was in 2018, after Pashinyan came to power, and the Dushanbe Agreement happened, that is, the consolidation of the ceasefire. I think where we are now is largely the result of both sides giving up on Dushanbe. That is, each had different expectations. Aliyev thought that by agreeing to these new arrangements regarding the consolidation of the ceasefire, he was giving time to Pashinyan to settle down and to uh, start serious negotiations. Aliyev thought that Pashinyan is a Yerevansi or Ichevansi, he's not Garapatsi. I'm not sure exactly what the discussions were at the time, but it, it, it is obvious and it, I'm quite sure from other sources that what he expected was a better uh, negotiating environment with Pashinyan. Pashinyan thought that he was uh, gaining time because he thought that he was getting time in order to make Armenia better, stronger, more democratic, more prepared, economically better, and he thought he had the time. And, and that did not happen. And then we've had the escalation, uh, the small test in July, and the escalation of the war of words and the each side taking a, an opposite direction. So each side justified the other's fears and suspicions, and each side heard from the other side what they wanted to hear in order to justify war. So I think these would be my initial comments.
Thank you, Jirai. Tom, I want to bring you in into the discussion and, and your thoughts about this, but with a specific uh, caveat. Uh, Jirai mentioned about Baku's expectations from the new government and their sort of waiting to see if it, uh, the negotiations will be reset or it will take a new dimension and so on. From your experience, uh, and you've done extensive research and continue to write about conflicts in Eastern Europe, but also in the Caucasus, Chechnya, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and so on. So what are your thoughts about what is what is the thinking and what are the uh, planning uh, or expectation going on in Baku and Yerevan behind the scenes? Were there indicators from what you've been following of such an escalation to take place? And as I mentioned earlier, uh, do you think uh, you know that uh, uh, Baku was fed up or their patience was too short to wait for more than two years to see if negotiations would be, I wouldn't call it back on track, but some kind of a track. Thanks, Azbed, and I'm glad to be with you too, Jira, uh, at this very difficult moment. Yeah, there's there's definitely short-term reasons for what's happened, and Jira has also mentioned some of them. The absence of the U.S., maybe the U.S. election was even a, a factor here. Uh, obviously, some guarantees from Turkey that, that Turkey would would suddenly give much more active support to Azerbaijan, and then this disappointment with with Pashinyan. Um, that's those are all obviously short term factors for for what we're seeing in the last few days. And then there are longer term factors. Um, just this kind of build up of, I guess, um, frustration on the Azerbaijani side. And you know, I've been God help me spending quite a bit of time on social media the last few days. Like most of us. Yeah, and and you know, both sides are expressing legitimate grievances, but of course they they are legitimate grievances that talk past each other and can only be resolved together. The Armenian grievance is that the uh, Azerbaijan has basically never sent any message to the Karabakh Armenians, but that we will ignore you or we will destroy you. That's basically the Armenian grievance. Um, and this is where the, the, the phrase existential threat comes up, that basically, and this obviously the Turkish element are obviously only enormously redoubles that. That's the Armenian narrative, which is a it's a, it's a valid narrative, but it's also there's also an Azerbaijani narrative that for 25 years, not just Karabakh, where a small number of Azerbaijanis lived, but also the territories around it, where more than well around half a million uh, people lived, ha- have the Armenians have not made any serious offer about returning these territories where all these people lived, and and indeed they've 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 over the years, successively stopped calling them occupied territories or a buffer zone and started calling them liberated territories. And that's the Azerbaijani grievance about why why would any country put up with this? And obviously, both these grievances are legitimate and they can only be resolved together. Um, and this is, I guess, where the international failing comes in, in that the, the, the Minsk group, who should have been trying to negotiate more seriously, have been a bit absent without leave. It's defaulted to the Russians who've got their own agenda. I mean, you have to give credit to Sergei Lavrov. He's actually been working this issue, but the the Americans and the French certainly haven't been the last few years. And so the parties to the conflict say they're not doing anything for us. And there's this kind of mutual mutual contempt, maybe a too strong too strong word, mutual disappointment that the international look and say, well, these these guys don't aren't serious about making peace. And the regional actors say these guys aren't serious about helping us and that's basically where you end up with with a mess like we we've got today 
And Tom, as a follow-up, do you think that the, the frustration that exists uh, in, on the Azerbaijani side in any way is influencing Aliyev's uh, position, domestically speaking? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is obviously a factor that we've um, we've seen before, is that the opposition, so-called opposition, uh, is often more Catholic than the Pope, as they say, more patriotic on this issue. And certainly, um, you see no difference in message um, between different Azerbaijanis, you know, Khadija, Ismail, a person I hugely respect for her struggle for human rights, posting extremely patriotic messages, um, um, Ilgar Mahmadov, and so on and so on. Um, there's, and we all know that, that, that this is the one issue that unites both nations, as it were, that everyone rallies around the flag. Uh, but of course, it get, this is where, also where it gets dangerous. If there's, if there's no perception of success, if, if Aliyev cannot declare some kind of success, uh, then the only option is to start sending in young men, sending in the conscripts to fight. Um, and, and this is when suddenly it, it becomes less about rallying around the flag and about families losing their, their loved ones. Jirai, both you and Tom actually have uh, had extensive uh, interactions with people in Azerbaijan, in Turkey, for your work, through your uh, especially with your diplomatic work, but also academic work afterwards. Uh, do you have any other perceptions or any other uh, sort of views to add about the perception from Baku on the issue of um, on the issue of the negotiations or the uh, impasse when it comes from their perspective and also from Yerevan's perspective about the impasse? The Armenian side often ignores uh, the grievances of the other side, and and it's mutual, of course. That is. We, we often do not take responsibility for the consequences of what we say. And uh, from Baku's point of view, when uh, Prime Minister Pashinyan declares that Karapar is Armenia, period, and leaders say negotiations are useless, and then they bring up the Aliyev factor as a dictator who does not speak for Azerbaijanis, that is our assessments of the other side and our position it, itself, we consider it justified, and that's the end of it. We do not consider how what it means to the other side. Uh, right. We think the Armenian side thinks that Azerbaijanis are the Azerbaijani position is extremist. There's no concession there. Well, the Azerbaijanis don't see much concession on the Armenian side. We there are two issues, uh, three issues interrelated: status of Garapah. The territories under Armenian control that are not were not populated by Armenians, that is, the occupied uh, territories that, that, as Tom said, now called liberated. And third, security, and security is also related to the first two. And on the status issue, Azerbaijan says, uh, I will look at anything as long as it's within the jurisdiction of Azerbaijan. Armenians say, you know, we're not going back to the former and uh, uh, we we want independence and being under Azerbaijan under any circumstances is impossible. So these are both in a way extreme positions. The uh, territories, no one in Armenia is talking about them nowadays uh, and it's been mm -hmm. uh, some time. And then security becomes irrelevant if these two are not resolved. So I would think that uh, on the Armenian side, we, we say they're not serious in negotiating, whatever they're proposing. And we often go by 
public statements, unfortunately, I have to say that I do not think there have been very serious in-depth discussions between the two sides in the last two, three years. I think Sir Sarkisian got into it, but uh, mm-hmm. I, don't think, I don't think that uh, the Armenian side uh, set seriously uh, to, to discuss some elements of a possible set- settlement in substance. The Armenian side raised technical issues, participation of Garapag, uh, Prime Minister Pashinyan had a formula uh, about any solution being accepted by all three peoples, uh, all of which may sound good, <clears throat> but I'm not sure that they deal with the substance of the issue. And for Azerbaijan, one thing was clear, it has been clear for some time. The ceasefire is perpetuating a status quo that is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And for the Armenian side, the general belief is that we still have time, uh, and if it means war once in a while, it's okay. Uh, we can go to war and we will win. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, the logic of discussions uh, does not include the other's issues on either side. The logic of the discussion in each country is within itself. Mm-hmm. So each side is negotiating with itself, uh, not with the other actually. <laughs> So this is um, this, I think, is a serious problem in terms of perceptions. Zooming out from uh, from Baku and Yerevan and trying to look at the larger regional uh, dynamics, uh, uh, we had we were having this discussion earlier, Tom, about the unprecedented role that Turkey has been playing in this conflict. And uh, both of you, please do correct me, especially Jira, because you're a historian, uh, whether or not there has been this kind of an involvement in uh, of, of Turkey in the Arapak conflict or not. Um, but uh, let me ask the question first uh, to Tom. Do you, what do you think Turkey's, uh, what could explain Turkey's involvement at, at this level in the conflict now? Why now? Is it a factor of Erdogan factor or there are other geopolitical gains or uh, pra- uh, processes that influence that? Well, I think Erdogan, in a world of disruptors, wants to be yet another disruptor in the Middle East and and now in the Caucasus as well. He sees room for that, that the the kind of multilateral organizations that might have pushed and the kind of US-European axis that might have pushed back against that uh, five, ten years, twenty years ago isn't there, whether it be in in the Middle East or, or now in the Caucasus. So he sees a chance to be the kind of the tough neighborhood kid who can throw his weight around and, and can do his friend a favor and, and win some favors in the Muslim world and, and in the Turkic world. I think he thinks this is relatively low cost because um, he's not actually uh, sending any boots on the ground. He's just assisting with, with drones and things like that. But of course, it's it's dangerous. And suddenly, he's um, um, he, he knows that this could end up with a confrontation with Russia, which he doesn't want, which is which is one danger. Uh, France has reacted particularly sharply, which um, which may not be helpful. Um, but you know, I think this is kind of Erdogan's modus operandi to to throw his weight around and see where things land and enjoy enjoy the chaos. But I'm not sure that he's he's planning particularly ahead. I mean, clearly one agenda is to try and, as it were, break the Minsk Group, um, and 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 both Azerbaijan and Turkey want to break the Minsk Group and have an expanded format in which Turkey has a seat at the table. Is that going to work? Um, how's Russia going to react? Um, 
that that's it's all going to be extremely messy. But this is obviously the agenda in Turkey. Right. Other than the, you know, being the destructor in chief uh, in Turkey, uh, Erdogan's policy, would you, would you, be, would you agree with the, uh, with the argument that uh, the, the engagement in Nagorno-Karabakh or on the Azerbaijani side is a low risk, high return, could be a low risk, high return victory uh, for Erdogan? Yeah, I, th- I think that's how Erdogan sees it. I don't think, I think he's, you know, he's an Istanbul street kid at heart. I don't think, I think he sees politics in even more accrued fashion perhaps than, than Putin does um, um, I think the and and he's probably quite enjoying the, the way the Russians have been caught off balance here and don't really know know how to react um, so I think that is his game which isn't to say that the Russians and the Europeans and others haven't haven't got things that they can do in return but certainly in the short term it's working for Zirai, you've spent a lot of time as a, as a negotiator interacting with Turkish diplomacy, diplomatic machine and institutions, and you know it very well with the people you interacted, uh, at least uh, back in the 90s and early 2000. Uh, what's your assessment of Turkish involvement now at this point, at this level, with this intensity? Well, uh, let, let me first uh, explain my understanding of the term extreme which I used for both cases, extreme demands. That is the demand uh, by Azerbaijan that Garapa Armenians submit to Azerbaijan is I consider extreme because it is almost impossible at this point, if not altogether impossible. And similarly for the Armenians to expect that Azerbaijan will recognize the independence of Garapa is also extreme because it is impossible at this point. So this is, Mm -hmm. that is if, if you're serious about negotiations, then you have to realize what is not, uh, what cannot be attained at this point. And if you demand the impossible, then you're blocking uh, negotiations. Now, with regard to Erdogan, I think, uh, of course, I agree fully with Tom's explanation of what Erdogan as a person is, but I would add uh, one, uh, as far as Erdogan is concerned, the idea that seems to have grown on him or that is being revealed more clearly his ottomanism his um, mm. his dislike of the republican uh, system uh, not just from religious point of view but in general as a form of government so being involved in iraq syria and then uh, trying lebanon libya uh, these are uh, Ottoman territories, uh, formerly historically. Now, the Ottoman model is also important, not just because it may be relevant to understanding Erdogan's policies, but also because it is part of the paradigm that is that was created uh, before the First World War, before the genocide. That is. Armenians trying to reform the Ottoman state so that they could breathe within it and their people could be comfortable. And Ottomans looking at Armenians getting support from Europe as a way of dismembering Turkey. So this is a paradigm that is known as the Sever syndrome, right? Uh, The Armenians became the enemy for a number of reasons. They were considered the enemy to the uh, young Turks for a number of reasons. Uh, But the paradigm itself is quite simple. That is, you guys uh, want to change 
the government to something where the Turkish domination dominance will uh, decrease and maybe disappear. Uh, and you are trying to dismember us by appealing to the Europeans. The reason for the appeal doesn't matter, except the impact is European powers, great powers, used the Armenians in order to get things for themselves. Now, this paradigm, the, the Severs syndrome, uh, known as the Severs syndrome since then, was revived very quickly. I mean, it has been revived for some time when political parties in the diaspora and Armenia have called for uh, the re return of uh, Western Armenia or the Eastern Ar uh, Ottoman Turkish provinces. Now, I, I do think that this culminate, this logic uh, became more dominant in the minds of Turkish leaders. And this is where all the Turks, all Turkish parties agree. When discussion about Serb Treaty increased and reached the level of the government, the president and the prime minister talked mm -hmm. about the uh, hundredth during the hundredth uh, anniversary uh, congress and celebrations or whatever. Uh, they they revived the Serb Treaty as a state policy. That is, the Serb Treaty is something that is desirable. And uh, now mm -hmm. imagine that Erdogan dislikes not only the Serb Treaty but he dislikes the Lausanne Treaty too. He's that far <laughs> off. So uh, we have a, a leader in uh, Turkey uh, who is so far away from what Armenians are thinking, but Armenia, and of course, this is united, the three political parties joined in uh, to make a statement that this is it, the Serb Treaty. The president of Armenia, although almost powerless, but he's still the president saying that this is the answer to the Armenian question. So even the term yeah. itself was the Armenian question that is pre-World War I uh, language. So uh, I think we have fallen into, as far as Turkey is concerned, uh, the, third, the third element is that they have considered obviously Azerbaijan uh, the closest of the Turkic peoples and uh, like their younger brothers. I remember during negotiations in the Minsk group when the Minsk group was 11 countries and there were there's Azerbaijan uh, newly independent and Turkey with a lot of experience and experienced uh, diplomats. They were trying to teach Azerbaijanis on how to behave. And there was one <laughs> session when Azerbaijan agreed to something I had said and the Turkish representative got up and screamed in Turkish, you know, uh, you know, what are you talking about? You don't know what you're giving away. But uh, soon after that disappeared, the Azerbaijanis became good diplomats themselves. The point is that there has been an increased identification of Turkey officially and popular level with the cause of Azerbaijan. Uh, and it's not just mm. the Azeri, Azeri minor uh, uh, group, uh, Azeri ethnic lobbying in in Turkey. There has been an increasing, and uh, that started changing when uh, toward that full identification when Azerbaijan joined in the uh, denial of the genocide, right? So Azerbaijan right. gave something to Turkey, and subsequently. Uh, we started behaving 
as if they were the same. The Garapaks is always called Azeris as uh, Turks, Turks, uh, but the policy-wise, and eventually for Turkey, Azerbaijani losses became their own losses. And uh, this became a question of honor for Turkey and right. uh, for Azerbaijan, mm. uh, for Turkey and the Turkish uh, people and political parties. Uh, a question right. of honor and saying, you guys have beaten our brothers enough, uh, 93, 94, 2016, July of, of this year, uh, but that's enough. Now we're going to help them. And uh, mm -hmm. this full, uh, the full identification uh, is a very important factor. And that's why I'm concerned that uh, I believe Erdogan and Cavusoglu when they say we're not leaving until, you know, because if, right. if they lose, if Azerbaijan loses, that means Turkey has lost. So the logic of the situation mm -hmm. leads me to think that they will stay and maybe create a front in Nakhchivan and other. I, I think this is much more dangerous if the logic of the conflict and this identification of Turkey, not just alliance and, uh, and closeness and kinship, but total identification. I think this is the most dangerous thing. Let me add one more thing with regard to Russia. Uh, I think mm -hmm. I would go a step further than Tom did in terms of Turkey and Russia. I, whether consciously or unconsciously, I think they are repeating a scenario. I would think that if Russia was an ally of Armenia, which it is formally, not only bilaterally, but also through the Common Defense Treaty, uh, that Russia would have said something more serious, if not done something about the Turkish uh, involvement directly now in the conflict and downing of an Armenian plane. That hasn't happened. My suspicion is that there is something going on as it did in 1920-21. Uh, that is, Russia wants to impose a solution and doing so kind of consolidate its presence and expand it to Azerbaijan in the South Caucasus. But Russia does not want to impose a solution in a manner that Armenians, Armenian government, political parties, and the people will become anti-Russian. Turkish pressure and participation and the fear of Turkey and any losses Armenia may sustain uh, may lead Armenia to go to Moscow for help and Moscow then will impose its conditions and then there will have been some kind of a Russian-Turkish tandem. Uh, we talk mm -hmm. about Azerbaijan-Turkey, but what concerns me as much, if not more, is the uh, Russia-Turkey situation, and it's right. not—it's not—it's uh, not too far-fetched, I think, that there may be some kind of understanding. If you remember, before the uh, war started, a couple of weeks before, there was a lengthy discussion between Erdogan and Putin, and not what. Exactly. what what did they discuss i wonder anyway that's about uh yeah tom i want to come back to you with this question uh, that you already raised earlier when you were talking about russia that they were caught off guard and their silence uh was uh was instigated or mo motivated by being sort of unprepared for this and we just heard the who provided an alternative perspective that actually they might have been aware 
there might have been also to a large extent, um, I wouldn't want to, I don't want to call it encourage, but they are okay with such a Turkish involvement in their backyard. Uh, what are your thoughts about Moscow's uh, involvement? I, I don't share that view. I mean, I've, I've always held a slightly unpopular view that Russia's influence is uh, exaggerated here, that Russia's always tried to, to sort of manipulate balance, uh, to pivot in, um, between one actor and the other in this conflict, and that it's um, a bit of a shadow influence. It looms large, but it's actually not very real. And now, um, and Russia, Russia hasn't got boots on the ground. Um, you know, compare this with a century ago, um, 1920, the, the Bolshevik 11th Army rampaging through Baku and Karabakh and Armenia. That's, that's, that's real Russian influence. They've got, no, they've got one base in Armenia. They've withdrawn from Azerbaijan. Both sides managed to stop them being peacekeepers back in 1994. So if, if the parties really want to do something, um, then um, they can defy the Russians. And, and, and obviously, this is basically one party, Azerbaijan. So I think, I think um, sure, the, the Armenians can come to the Russians and say, you know, we want we want more of your support. But I, I think the Azerbaijanis, um, you know, can, can live without Russia. And, and this is, the, you know, they, they're energy free of Russia. I think the Russia's leverage on, on, on Azerbaijan is actually quite weak. And I think this is the Russian problem. This is this, this kind of pivoting, balancing act that they've performed um, is suddenly being disrupted by by Azerbaijan. And sure, they've, they've got one or two things they're going to try, but I think they've been caught off balance. I think Putin himself hides from this conflict. He's never taken uh, it seriously. Uh, interestingly, in the four-year presidency of Medvedev, Medvedev actually tried to take this conflict seriously. Uh, but, but I think I've, I've read pretty much everything that Putin has ever said on this conflict. He's either kind of joke, made some bad taste jokes about it. He's talked about Agda, Agdam wine. Um, or he said, it's, it's not our conflict. We're not going to deal with it. I, he prefers bilateral relations with Baku and Yerevan, and he's tried to avoid this conflict. And I think this, um, and I think he's paying the price in Russian influence today. I, um, it's, I know it's not a uh, the orthodox view of the Russian role in this conflict, um, but um, let's see. I, 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 I'm, I, I think Russia's definitely been being caught off guard here. Uh, Tom, you did mention about that historically, back in 1920, when the Russians had boots on the ground, and they don't have it now. Uh, Sergei Lavrov uh, yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, when he made a statement about uh, settlement, a possible settlement of the conflict, uh, at least in the translation, English trans translation, he said independently, as well as within the OSCE Minsk group. Don't you think that this might be Russia's in to put boots on the ground uh, somehow, either as peacekeepers or just waiting to see until probably Armenia or even Azerbaijan might turn uh, to Russia to say, OK, you know, OK, we'll listen to you. I'm sure this is the Russian agenda to solve the conflict with and have a kind of peace settlement with, with a kind of Russian flavor to it um, involving opening up communication routes, Russian boots on the ground. But I would remind you that back in 1994, and Jira knows this better than I do, when Russia had much more influence in the region, it had, um, you know, had bases across the region, um, the, country, the two nations were much weaker. Um, the ceasefire had a was a, a two-step, had a two-phase agenda. One was a, a Russian ceasefire, the second was a Russian peacekeeping force. And when the defense ministers came to Moscow, 
they basically said no to, to Pavel Grotchev, the Russian defense minister. The Azerbaijanis said no. And uh, if you believe Armenian sources, the Armenians were very happy for the Azerbaijanis to say no because they didn't want Russian peacekeepers either. Moving along, uh, I know, Tom, your, uh, your time is limited. Uh, I want to also bring in the issue of Iran, uh, which has relatively been uh, sidelined, at least um, other than making some uh, major statements about cautioning both sides and so on and so forth. Before asking about Iran, but I also want to uh, I want you to uh, look at the or think about or comment about the perception, at least uh, by some analysts, that uh, Turkey and Russia are trying to move the framework of Nagorno-Karabakh from a Euro-Atlantic, from Western Minsk group uh, framework to a more regional one. So within that context, do you think that Iran has any role to play, constructive role to play? Uh, and what do you make of Iran's relative silence on this issue? My answer will be quite simple because I'm not an Iran guy, but you know, Iran has always been um, since Iran was, as we know, trying to mediate talks in May of 1992 when Shusha was taken by the Armenian forces. And since, the, and since that humiliation, they've never had a role and the Western powers have been happy to, to keep them out. Um, my view is that they need, that if there is to be some kind of new format, it should be a wider format. Um, if there should be, that there should be some kind of Minsk conference, not in Minsk, which I guess is not the best place at the moment to hold a conference. <laughs> but there should be some conference. Um, you know, why not hold it? In, why not hold it in Venice um, or somewhere more pleasant? Um, and um, and that conference, you know, should be the Georgians should be there, and the Iranians should be there, and the Chinese should be there. And there should be a lot of people there who haven't had a formal role up till now in in the negotiations. Uh, but on on the on the details, I think I'm going to have to default to to Jira. Um, on the issue of Iran, but putting aside the issue of Iran, the second part or the our argument that do you see or do you feel that there is a tendency to move away from Minsk and considering it with the role of the US, the Euro-Atlantic sort of framework into a more regional one? Would Turkey and Russia be interested in such a framework or such a uh, formula? If, if you're asking me, I, I think you can't immediately dismantle a diplomatic framework like that. The OSCE has this framework. Um, I do think it, there is a certain logic to, um, the OSCE is also in a leadership crisis at the moment, there is a certain logic to move it to the UN, um, but that has to be done in a systematic fashion. You don't just break up a 30-year-old a diplomatic process um, at the drop of a hat. But certainly, um, and I think you know, the Americans, uh, I think the, both, both sides would have reasons to want the, the Americans and the French in there and, and other Europeans. But I, I think we, we, are, we are definitely seeing the, the slow death of the Minsk process um, and its um, replacement by something else, which I hope is going to be more uh, efficacious rather than less. Yeah, on ceremonial uh, passing away of the OSC, uh, of the Minsk process. Um, Jiraid, what about your thoughts? I mean, again, in your capacity as a, as a diplomat, you have met with Iranian uh, leaders, Iranian diplomats, and you know their views uh, in terms of uh, the regional conflict, which could easily spill over uh, to Iran, especially with their Azeri population, ethnic Azeri population. Where do you see, or do you see any, any role of Iran now uh, in what's happening based on their statements or actions even? Sorry, I think I'm going to have to step out here, I've got a couple of calls I need to make. Take care, Tom. Iran's position is very interesting. I personally think it would be extremely helpful because I find Iranian diplomacy to be 
uh, very effective, number one. Number two, very eager. And I think it would be very useful. But this is one point on which everyone else agrees. The Russians don't want the Iranian involvement. The Turks don't want it. The Americans don't want it. Mm -hmm. Maybe Europeans might want it. In fact, it is possible that the Minsk group was created in order to ensure the failure of the Iranian uh, diplomacy and uh, efforts. So right. it, it is uh, very possible that it was done by the Russians. It was uh, whatever. Now, uh, because of the the day of the occupation of of, uh, of the of Shushi, of uh, the liberation of Shushi in May. Now, and they were involved for nine months, by the way. Uh, and this, uh, I can say that their involvement was out of self-interest on two levels. First, they don't mm -hmm. want two neighbors to fight. And second, uh, what you mentioned, the large Azeri minority in the north of Iran that was restive and which El Chibay was trying to provoke. And uh, their solution to that was to tell their Azeri citizens, uh, look, uh, we're trying to make peace with these, don't make life more difficult for us. So their right. initiative to establish a ceasefire and then move on to possibly a solution was also in that respect out of self-interest. But if I may, I want to, I'm sorry, the Tom left, but I want to uh, continue that discussion on the role of Russia. Uh, my view is that Tom is right in saying not much influence on Azerbaijan, but Russia doesn't need to influence Azerbaijan. Russia needs to make Azerbaijan more of a, an ally, a closer uh, beholden to them. And what it needs to do is what they've always advocated, to have a solution that is to the detriment to the Armenian position. And if they do that, mm. then Azerbaijan will be friendly. And they do have serious influence on Armenia, from arms to infrastructures. Uh, so I, I think uh, they also have some influence on internal uh, processes. So it is, uh, I, I think uh, the, uh, the Russian influence is being more in, uh, significant in Armenia. That is where they need to make uh, the difference. So that's right. uh, number one. Number two, I don't think uh, Russian policy, as unified as it is, is just Putin. I mm. don't think we could underestimate foreign policy people. Uh, Lavrov, of course, is in charge, but there's a strong foreign ministry there that has defined interests, and certainly the army, the uh, mm. armed forces of Russia, they have their own powerful intelligence and they conduct uh, their own thinking. And I think Russian policy is a reflection of that. In the 1990s, under Yeltsin, you could see the difference between these three. I remember one week when an advisor of Yeltsin came to convey to us Russian policy. Then uh, the uh, uh, foreign ministry uh, ambassador came to talk about Russian policy. And I know that uh, GRU, the military intelligence, was talking to our people in defense and saying, this is our policy. You know, that was unified uh, later, but still it 
just you know uh, i think you know, we need to think of people other than putin also participating in the making and the disinterest of putin may be real uh, but still doesn't mean that there are, others are not pushing uh, for uh, for things and Gira, sorry to interrupt but do you see do you feel that within the context of russian uh, multiple voices there is also a, a clear directive or a clear trajectory to remove the uh, negotiations from OSCE to a more regional context? Well, uh, two comments on that. Number one, the I think the Minsk group process uh, has now been reduced to almost nothing. Uh, statements, Zimbabwe can make statements, you know, uh, Chile can make statements. Uh, on end the conflict, please. I think the direction of things has been more toward Russia. And we have to realize one thing. On the, it is a paradoxical uh, truth, I think. On this issue as to what should the solution entail to the conflict of Garapa, Europe, US and Russia agree. And they agree on behalf of Azerbaijan. That is, they agree that Karapakh should not be independent. Uh, they agree that the territories should be returned. Under what circumstances, with what guarantees is something else. So once we realize that, then it does not matter who is in the Minsk group. Uh, the US has not acted independently. The only thing that is different is once that is agreed or imposed on the parties that solution who will benefit mm -hmm. from the peace who will benefit as the as the maker of peace so and i think while they are functioning together when in other areas they fight each other right the us and russia on this they haven't uh, because mm -hmm. they agree in the principles but nothing has been done more than words because they're not sure that if I put pressure on my client, he will not go to the other. Uh, this is called the forum shopping that used to happen a lot. Uh, so I, I think that it is almost an irrelevant question. Uh, it, there's no doubt that if Russia takes the initiative, the others will back Russia. But the reality yeah. now is that Turkey is involved more directly declared itself party to the conflict is fighting now this without boots but it is fighting on the side of azerbaijan like it has never done before and uh, it means also that they will insist on being part of the negotiations whatever the result of this fighting they will not go away and and it is russia and and turkey are the two countries that are other than Iran, the most directly interested in this, the most directly involved, and the most directly uh, trying to to have their influence uh, and and have the resolution the way they want it. So I think the formula will be Russia and Turkey, and with or without Azerbaijan and Armenia, with or without. Oh. They don't have to. If they agree, then Russia, Turkey will put the military pressure. Uh, Russia will benefit and uh, uh, Azerbaijan will not lose anything. 
there will not be anything that is harmful to Azerbaijan. There will be parts of that solution that are harmful to the Armenians, including evacuation from the seven, uh, at least many, most of the districts under some circumstances. Thank you, Shirayr. And, uh, th and uh, on this sober and perhaps somber sort of uh, analysis and view of this uh, larger perspective, I hope we've been able to provide uh, a context uh, to keep analyzing this issue. Uh, we'll be covering more of, on this issue in our Weekend Review, Grung's Weekend Review podcast, and possibly uh, the next uh, weeks, the next days and weeks uh, by having more experts and expert analysis on this issue. And that concludes our program for this episode of Grung Weekend Review. We hope it has helped your understanding of some of the issues from this previous week. We look forward to your feedback and suggestions for issues to cover in greater depth. Contact us on our website at grung.org, that's G-R-O-O-N-G, and on our Facebook page, A-N-N-Grung, or in our Facebook group, Grung-Armenian News Network. Special thanks to Laura Osborne for providing the music for our podcast. I'm Hovik Manacharyan, and on behalf of everyone in this episode, I wish you a good week. Thank you for listening, and talk to you next week.